Listener Production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn, and lead. I've led teams on newspapers, on a magazine, and now in my own business. And in this series, I seek out the experts to understand how you and I can be better leaders. One of the most important leadership skills is collaboration, because no one can do it on their own. Arabella Burge makes this look effortless. She became a leader when she was appointed Director of Communications for PBL Media, which was one of Australia's largest media companies. She then moved to London to help manage her husband's online magazine subscription business. Back in Australia, Arabella was at a loss for what to do next when she attended the funeral of a woman named Gidget, who tragically took her own life after suffering perinatal depression. Having experienced the loneliness of being a new mother herself, Arabella was inspired to become the CEO of the Gidget Foundation, a charity dedicated to supporting families dealing with perinatal depression and anxiety. In this episode, I uncovered the real secret to her success, collaboration. Arabella is the master of convincing people what she needs is also in your interests. You were in charge of corporate affairs and PR for all of PBL Media in your 30s and one of the few women at an executive level. You were never phased by being young or by being female. Why do you think that was the case? It never really came into it for me, to be honest. Um, I I remember actually really clearly there was a story um, that happened when I when I got that role. I had previously been the PR manager for the ACP magazines looking after 80 different titles and the head of PBL Media at the time, uh, a guy called Anne Law, said, look, um, you know, we're looking to appoint somebody across the entire group. We're going to go out to uh, within the different divisions and see, you know, who's interested. Is that something you'd be interested in? I said, yes. And anyway, cut a long story short, it was myself and a- another male colleague. He was in charge of Nine's um, PR at the time. And they really pitted the two of us against each other. And I felt really uncomfortable by it because it did turn into a little bit of a he versus she. And I found that what that made me do was that that made me, made me really prepare. And I went through and I really thought through every element of how, what it was that I was trying to achieve, I could achieve in a way that they would see it as a win-win for them as well. And interestingly, he just assumed that he'd get the gig and they put us both in the same room together and they made us pitch in front of each other. And the interesting thing was is that I had this, you know, really well-prepared, executed kind of, you know, document and I was like ready to go. I'd practised it 50 times a day before. And he walked in and fluffed and blustered his way through this kind of idea in his head of what he thought it might be And I felt really sorry for him. And I actually sat there and in kind of, I guess, what you might call a true female empathetic view, almost started trying to help him with his pitch. (laughs) 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 Um, But ultimately, my pitch was about saving money. It was about doing the job better. And it was about collaborating. And it was those three pieces that won me the job. So I think it's about, you know, just really thinking things through and being prepared. One of the criticisms of women often is that they over-prepare, that they, they do exactly what you just did and now you, you think it, you practice. 
But the guy goes in, he's kind of confident and easy and relaxed and he's not as uptight. And sometimes that can actually work in his favour and against the overprepared, um, swatty kind of girl. So extraordinary for you to pull it off in that pressurised environment. How do you keep your, your nerves under under control? Oh, look, I was super nervous. And I have to say, it's very rare that I've been so prepared. <laughs> and that was one of the only few times. And I think it was because... That is not true. I can see the notes you've written now <laughs> for this interview. Hang on. I wrote them 10 minutes ago. So <laughs> let's not say I'm too prepared. Um, in these situations, a lot of the time it is gut instinct. And because I was prepared, I wasn't so nervous. I knew everyone in the room. I knew I'd do a good job. I knew I'd put my heart into it. I knew I was passionate about what I was doing and I knew I wanted to achieve. And I kind of thought, well, if they can't see that, then that's their loss, not mine. So I'll just give it my everything and go for it. And I guess maybe luck played into it, you could say, but also I think I was actually the right candidate on the day. I'm just going to say there's no luck in that. You worked very hard for that role. How old were you when you got that job? Oh, I reckon I might have been about 32. So I just want to point out that our listeners are women of your age uh, who are all starting to come up against the challenges and the opportunities and thinking about how they um, how they go for those roles. So your your story is really super relevant and, and helpful. So you get the job. You are at an executive level where it's pri- primarily men. Were you ever intimidated by that or do you think that you just sort of had that 30-year-old view of the world that it didn't really matter? Yeah, I kind of, um, I guess in a way it was a bit of a novelty. There was me and two other women who were on the executive team and the rest were all men. So I don't know what the percentage would have been, but it was probably yeah, 10% female in, in terms of the exec team. And there was definitely a camaraderie amongst the women that were that were in that team. I think that, you know, all in all, it was it was just a really exciting time and I was just wanting to achieve great things and I just had a good attitude, I think. Attitude had, plays a lot into it as well. And and I didn't make things complex. I kind of, I did the reverse. I made the complex simple in everything I was trying to achieve. I was always looking for ways just to simplify it and kind of find a, a, a commonsensical approach. And I think quite often we forget that can, the, the solution can be staring us right in the face. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't really, I didn't really even let those issues kind of come into play really. So you didn't last there that long. Uh, you had this amazing job um, and then you walked away from it. Tell us why you walked away. Yeah. Combination of things. Um, probably the main one was love. <laughs> <laughs> uh, met and fell in love with my gorgeous husband and um, we uh, decided to move to England. And he had a, a business that was flourishing in Australia and New Zealand and doing well in England, but still, I guess, in its infancy in many ways. And so we wanted to relocate there um, together as a team and see what we could do. And that's what led me away from PBL Media. But I think that combined with the fact that I saw what I was doing there, it was incredibly corporate. It was 24-7. It was exhausting. I could see burnout on the horizon. And in many ways, this was a, a beautiful next path for me. And it was a huge adventure moving to London and taking on the business with your husband. I want to talk about that because, again, I think you have tackled a quite common problem and that is working with your other half, whether it be inside an organisation or inside a business that you start together or how did you go navigating your relationship personally and professionally? Yeah, look, there were certainly times when it was really, really hard. Um, There's no denying that. 
I actually mentioned that um, I thought you 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 could be asking me this question to my husband this morning as I walked out the door, <laughs> and he said, "Oh well, there's a simple answer to that. I just used to go out to lunch." <laughs> <laughs> so he'd obviously um, you know had had enough of me. And he'd he'd go out and do something else. But no, we 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 were actually a really nice complementary fit. Andrew's fearless. I'm calculated. So between the two of us, I think we found some really beautiful middle ground, and we have really good complementary skills where, you know, he'd he'd be out there creating something amazing and I'd come along and say, but this is how we're going to make it work. Uh, you would have also begun to work with his team and you have had to navigate your relationship with his team. How challenging was that? Yeah, really hard. It's funny, you know, the first day I started, I said, can I, can I help clean up? And, and they were kind of shocked because I was in the kitchen and I was washing all the all the cups. And then I went into the boardroom and I tidied that up. And then I started going through different cupboards that, you know, needed a bit of a, a, a tidy out and asked, pe- started asking people questions. And they were kind of blown away that I was really happy to just do really basic stuff in the first instance. And I've always had a big belief that if you can show people that you're really willing to get your hands dirty and do every part of the business, whatever that business might be, people kind of come on board with you. And I did it in a way that was non-threatening. I mean, it wasn't like I was sitting there, you know, throwing out their files. You know, I was I was kind of going through and saying, oh, you know, what's this mean and how does that work? And asking questions, but not in a really kind of, I guess, um, annoying way either. <laughs> was it deliberate or did it, was it just instinctive? It was instinctive. I just, I just, I saw that the kitchen needed someone to wash the cups. So I thought I'll start there. And I think that honestly, everyone just didn't expect that of the husband's wife they kind of expected me to come in and start, you know, ball breaking and telling them who had to do what and when, um, and particularly because of, you know, my, my former career, and I did the absolute opposite. And I think that was a real surprise to them and I think it, it gave them a sense of ability to have empathy with my situation as well and that I was walking in somewhere where I perhaps didn't feel all that comfortable and I was a little bit vulnerable and, and it, it started things off on a really nice note. What about conflict at the executive level, so in the decision-making team. Yeah, we had some caucus, some you? massive arguments about things, <laughs> some storm outs, um, yeah, speaking, no speaking for a couple of days, all those sorts of when things. When I say the executive, that's just you and your husband? Or <laughs> that's there... just me and my husband. I thought we were still on the swan. <laughs> well, I wasn't sure whether you, I mean, I know he's got other leaders in his team, right? So yeah, they yeah, had yeah. to get used to you too. Yeah, totally. So, no, they they were really good though. We, we kind of worked, we would work through problems and, and in a really collaborative way, that was really, it's, it's always been part of everything I've done in every role is really looked for ways that we could collaborate and and share ideas and respect other people's ideas and then let them have the time to explain their idea properly. And then if the idea itself may not be quite on track, to kind of help guide them in a way that you get to where you need to go as a group. And I think that was really critical in many of those situations as well. Many of your, our listeners today might be thinking about starting their own business. You've worked now in a number of different businesses with your husband. What, what advice do you have if you're going to start out on that path, particularly as a, as a young solo female entrepreneur, because increasingly women are looking to start businesses from their mm. front, front I think room. you've got to be fearless. Mm. I think you've got to think to yourself, what's the worst that can happen? It fails. So what? And most of them do. So having a, a spirited determination and a fearless attitude to me are absolutely critical. And I think also having like 
dogged determination to be kind of persevere and, and, and drive to kind of get the outcome that you're wanting to achieve is really important as well. And not just settling for, well, it happened this way. Well, let's find that roadblock. Let's go over it. Let's go around it. Let's knock it down. Find a new way through because there's always different ways you can you can do things. Um, so I think, yeah, being fearless is really important, but also that dogged determination and perseverance is key. Let's talk about your transition back to Australia and the role you're in now, because in many ways it is the triumph of your career. What you do, you've done now is extraordinary with the Gidget Foundation. You've taken a, a very successful brand that was small into an incredibly mainstream operation in terms of the size and influence and impact that it has on the lives of women. Just tell us a little bit about what the organisation did when you first arrived and what it's doing now. Yeah, so the Gidget Foundation is is very close to my heart. The foundation began 20 years ago through a great tragedy, a gorgeous girl whose nickname was Gidget. She was a, a Northern Beaches, Sydney girl, and she was suffering from postnatal depression, but it was unrecognised, and she had a little nine-month-old baby girl called Jasmine. Sadly, she didn't know how to explain what it was that she was feeling, and um, she tragically took her own life, and that was... a just an absolute grief-stricken period of time for her family and her friends. And I knew her sisters really well. I knew Gidget not as well, but um, I was at her funeral and I remember really clearly looking around the the church and just feeling like there was this black hole and it was just, there was just grief everywhere. And at that point in time, 20 years ago, no one knew what postnatal depression was. You know, it wasn't talked about. If you have a baby, you know, it's meant to be this joyful, happy fabulous, exciting time. And uh, instead what she was feeling was great shame and fear and denial. And and so she took her own life. And I, I really empathised with that. When we were in London, I had um, twins, a boy and a girl, which are the great delights of my life. Um, I just want to press pause right now. <laughs> but having had children myself, I guess I really even more so understood where she had been and how she'd got there and what she'd felt. I guess that's again where that empathy comes through, isn't it? Did you have any of those symptoms yourself? Look, I didn't, but, well, I, so I certainly wasn't diagnosed as such. I, um, I lived in London. I had no friends with babies. I had no family other than my husband and he was running our business. <laughs> so I was very alone and I think when you're that alone, you can really feel quite isolated and that fear and that shame of kind of putting up your hand and saying, hey, I need some support, I need some help, it's, it's really hard. And there's so much stigma attached to it. So I think that, that the empathy factor was really there for me in understanding how she felt when she got to where she got to. And I just thought, you know, what an amazing opportunity to get involved with an organisation like that. And and it had been running for, at that point, 16 years. I, I saw the job actually on Facebook advertised. And I thought, wow, I'd quite like to do that. I'd, I'd thought about, come, when I, we got back to Australia, I thought about going back into the corporate world. Yeah. I just want to pause you there for a minute because um, I remember you having, and I think it's valuable to explore a bit, so much in, in decision about what you wanted to do with your career. You'd had this extraordinary career from a very young age and then you came back and you really didn't know what you wanted to do. Yeah, totally. And a was, lot of people feel like that. Yeah, I was thrown. Yeah. You know, I'd walked out in this kind of really super powerful role of Australia and I walked back in and 
I'd lost my identity in many ways. I'd arrived back with, you know, two children, a husband and and we had to pretty much set up our lives again from scratch. And it was, it was, I felt vulnerable and I felt really unsure and I didn't, I didn't know how to transition back in, you know, it was, it was it through me. And which, you know, again, as a PR and marketing expert and someone who's got lots of skills in terms of communication and lots of contacts, you know, it should have been relatively easy for someone like you, but it was really tough at that time. Yeah, it was really hard. And I, I had all these ideas and I just didn't know which one to pursue and then I saw this job ad and I thought, oh, I'd quite like to do that because I've got all these skills from the corporate world and I've got all these skills from small business and I could actually bring the two together and apply them for good and apply them for, to something with, you know, an incredible purpose and make change in the world. And I just thought that's something that really would make me feel happy um, and, and, and content in, in my working life. And I thought, well, I'll bugger it, I'll give it a go. So I'd actually never written, I'd never had a resume like formally done up. So I sat there and I thought, oh God, I better try and do this. So I I did it. Anyway, I rang the recruiter and she said, I'll send me through your resume. I sent it through and she said, oh no, it's terrible. We're going to have to start again on that. (laughs) (laughs) And so the recruiter actually sat there with me and redid my resume with me, which I thought was fabulous. She's now a great friend of mine, actually. And I went through five job interviews to get the job. And I'd I'd never done that either because each job I'd got... Previously, I'd kind of gone from one role to another role through, you know, connection. and Apart from that poor bloke at PBL that you obliterated. Well, apart from him, yeah, but that wasn't like a job interview <laughs> as such. <laughs> um, yeah, so look, I, 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 I got the job and I, and I love it and it's, I'm passionate about it. It's, I'm, I am making a difference and we started, when I started um, at the Gidget Foundation, we had one Gidget house where we offer 10 free clinical psychological sessions to mums and dads in need. And now we've got, uh, we're about to open our 14th Gidget House within four years and we've got another five coming this year. We've developed three new programs, um, a national telehealth service, a group therapy treatment program and um, some other additional online supports. And we've really just, I guess, taken what was, as you said, a really great brand into more of a mainstream and, and, and tried to help as many people as we can. And I like to think that we're now really the peak organisation in perinatal mental health. Can we talk a little bit about our understanding as a community of perinatal depression? That's grown in the time that you've been in the role. We do have a much greater understanding now than when Gidget was struggling. Just tell me a little bit about that and maybe educate us a bit about what signs to look for. Yeah, so perinatal depression and, and anxiety, because there is very much an anxiety-driven li- level to this, is really common. One in five new mums will be diagnosed with it, but then if you consider how many won't be diagnosed, it's significantly higher. We know that over 50% of new parents will experience adjustment disorders, and we know that it affects 100,000 new parents every single year. So that's really significant. Maternal suicide is also the number one cause of death amongst new mums. So we are very driven to support people who might be experiencing those things. So what 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 are they experiencing? It can be anything from insomnia, um, not being able to sleep when the baby's asleep, uh, feeling frustrated, feeling angry, feeling teary. It can be uh, mood swings, uh, not wanting to leave the house, not wanting to talk to people, feeling very alone and feeling like you just want to keep everyone away from you. 
and really just thoughts of, you know, great distress or thoughts of nothingness. You can be quite numb. So the, the, the symptoms really vary from person to person. We also know that certain things can bring it on. So there could be a predisposition to mental health issues prior to having a baby. Um, and the perinatal period can, is considered from conception through to one year postpartum. So it is a really kind of strong period where there's hormones involved. So there's a lot of hormone changes, but things like marital stress, financial stress, moving houses, anything that kind of unearths what was your norm can really bring on those kind of levels of stress. So it's looking for for factors that um, certainly perfectionist uh, personalities, um, people that like to have control or have routine because all of that goes out the window when you have a baby. And I think, you know, really understanding that it's going to be, everything is going to be unexpected is the key with perinatal depression and anxiety. Would you, I, I want to explore a bit the perfectionist component because we have a lot of those in our community. I have a lot of those on staff um, and they're young women who are sometimes completely paralysed by decision making because they don't want to put anything into the world that's not perfect. Mm. Do you ever feel like that? Do you, are you a bit of a perfectionist? I kind of suspect you might be a bit. Do you know I'm not? I got a, 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 a mug from one of my staff at Christmas time uh, and, and the mug said, I get shit done. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think that was really um, poignant in a way because it doesn't have to be done perfectly. I just want to achieve it in a way that is enough for me. And I think it's about what bar we set ourselves because the only person that puts those expectations of perfectionism on ourselves on each other is ourselves. So it's it's actually interesting that the, the Gidget logo is a gerbra, and this gerbra has kind of wonky petals that some are a bit longer than the others, and 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 some kind of hang to the left a bit or the right a bit, and and it's bright red, bright red because Gidget absolutely loved um, red. She was always wearing you know red nails, red lippy. She even wore red shoes to a wedding. Um, so this logo is is kind of imperfect because it's got all these wobbles and these 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 wonky um, petals. And if you Google a gerbra, there's millions upon millions of perfect gerbras on the internet. But when you look at our gerbra, it's actually splendid. It's beautiful. It's in full bloom. It's gorgeous. It's got this colour that just radiates dynamism and, and fabulousness. And I think so... What I'm trying to say here is that you can actually be imperfect and yet perfect to you. And I think that's really key is keeping your expectations real. So, yeah, I, I don't think I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> I think that I, I like to achieve things to a level that that I, I wanted to, that I set myself the goal for. We've interviewed Jamila Rizvi on this podcast as well and she's also um, an exceptional achiever and she says similar things that... Um, she would choose getting stuff done over stuff being perfect. The other thing I want to ask you about, because I think this is also a hallmark of your leadership style and your success, is your ability to be, be extraordinarily persuasive. You are the person that does not let it go. Um, can you? Can we explore that a little bit? Are you even aware that you're like that? I think it's about providing a win-win. Always looking at what you're trying to achieve, because obviously you wouldn't be asking otherwise, but what also they're trying to achieve and presenting it in a way that it truly is a win for them. Because then you're actually not really selling anything. You're not actually trying to persuade them. It's a given. 
So it's about critically thinking through what it is that you're presenting or trying to achieve up front so that you get the result that you want. And then when you don't get the result that you want, you just find another way, which is, I guess, where that persistence comes in along with the persuasiveness. (laughs) But I also think that if you don't ask, you don't get. And a lot of people will tend to be nervous to ask, but what's the worst that someone can do is say no, so what? Go yeah, elsewhere it's a bit, and try it's a bit again. Like starting a business and it not working. I mean, kind of so what? Yeah. You gave something a go, um, but you've learned something along the way. Totally. Collaboration is something you've spoken a lot about, and I think it is um, also a really great skill to develop. What collaborations have you got underway at the moment that you're most proud of? Yeah, look, we've just recently brought together 26 organisations late last year and we we actually built a website in under three weeks, which I thought was pretty magical given we had absolutely zero money to do it with. <laughs> Nothing like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Um, we brought together all of these organisations in the perinatal mental health space to drive awareness, education and also to provide consumers with absolute direct access to treatment services that can support them and help them. So instead of being one of these kind of, you know, I guess awareness groups that just has resources on a website, instead it actually directs people in a kind of a triage format, if you like, to what suits them. We look after people that have infertility issues. We look after people who have multiple miscarriage. We look after people who have experienced great grief and loss through stillbirth. And then, of course, people who have um, experienced postnatal depression or anxiety through that conception to one year postpartum. So we look after the full gamut of people and being able to collaborate with all of the other different groups out there and saying to them, let's all come together, let's be powerful in a united voice and share that voice with all Australians so that everyone can benefit by accessing the service that is right for them, just seemed like a no-brainer to me. And then what we did was we we launched it and we had a a new daily theme every day and it was really exciting because all of those organisations took that message and shared it with their networks as well. So all of a sudden it went from what might have just been a Gidget Foundation campaign to becoming 26 organisations campaign. And and, and now this year we've actually already had another six organisations join up. So it's, it's growing and um, I'd really like to see this become one of those things that I look back on in years to come and go, wow, I'm, I'm super proud we did that and that was a, a fabulous initiative. You've often led people that are older than you. How have you tackled that problem or has that just been the same as any of the challenges you faced? Um, look, I think that in many ways basic empathy is the key to dealing with all forms of managerial issues, whether that be managing someone older, someone younger. Um, it's it's about understanding their situation and seeing something from their point of view. And I think the minute you do that, you gain their respect and you gain their feeling of valuing you as a leader. We've just had in, in the organisation I'm, I'm at at the moment, we've just had two really difficult situations, one with an a issue around mental health and one with an issue around breast cancer. And the way that I led those two situations made me feel proud as a, as a leader is in that, you know, we, we've gone above and beyond on every possible level that we can. Mm-hmm. And it's things like that when you can demonstrate that kind of leadership and the, the rest of the team see it, 
that they really value being part of that team. And I think that whether they're someone's older or younger, I think it's ultimately about empathy and how, how you treat people because, you know, do unto others and you'll have them do unto you. I know I've argued with you in the past that you shouldn't run for politics because politics is not for good people, it's for crazy people. <laughs> but listening to you right now, you know, your ability to bring bring, bring people together and to persuade people to your uh, way of thinking, um, it strikes me I should be encouraging you into politics, not out of politics. Any advice do you have, you've led a lot of people from a very young age, any advice do you have for people starting out leading a, leading a small team? I think getting to know your, your team, getting to know your staff and sometimes, look, I'm, I'm probably one of the worst at it. This is one of my, my negatives is I, f- I sometimes forget the small talk. Um, so do I. Because I'm too busy because I want to get stuff done. <laughs> Back to I'm, that mug. <laughs> I'm terrible with um, how was your holiday? I forget. Yeah, but how was your holiday? Such an important one because that's their life. I know. You know, that's what they've just been doing for the last two, I three know. weeks, whatever it might be. And, yep. and we forget that. But I think really getting to know people, getting to understand what makes them tick, making them feel valued is probably the most important thing you can do as a manager. Because if you have someone who feels valued, they will give you their all. They will give you initiative. They will give you responsibility. They will they will fulfil everything that you need them to be because they feel your value. But have you got time for all that? Well, yes. I you think do. I have to make it and I don't do it as well as I should, but and, I have to. Okay. And my next question is, what if the staff member is just not very good? What do you do then? Well, that is really tricky and that that obviously you have to go through all the typical kind of, you know, legal avenues of, you know, meetings and warnings and all of those sorts of things. I tend to look at ways that I can work with them to make a decision that suits them and us. And it's either going to be this isn't right for you. What do you what do you think? And how do you feel about that? And I guess using some of those persuasive skills to get them to see that they're not perhaps performing at a, at a rate or a way in which they should be. Maybe this isn't the right place for them. Or looking at ways you can direct them into, into an area that would be more suitable for them. But I think not addressing the situation is the worst possible thing you can do because it just blows up in every respect for them, for you, for the organisation, for everyone. So I think really addressing it early, quickly, and trying to find that win-win solution, trying to find something that suits them, that suits you. Are you good at difficult conversations? I don't, I don't think I'm good at it. I think that it's a really, maybe it's a really learned skill. Maybe you've got to have a lot of bad conversations to get good at it. Well, I just spent a long time in journalism and that, there's a lot of tough conversations then, yes. <laughs> um, no, I think, I think again, wherever you can understand their situation and, and try and level with them in a way that is... Fair and reasonable. I think fair and reasonable, such a, they're such great words because if you're fair and reasonable, then they will genuinely usually be fair and re- reasonable as well. So, you know, certainly there are times when things go pear-shaped um, on every level and in different chapters of your life. But how you deal with it, walking away and taking time to reflect and, and the power in the word sorry is so important and I think we forget that. People forget the power of the word sorry is truly in being sorry. And I think if you're having a difficult conversation, if you've done something wrong, you say up front, hey, listen, I'm really sorry that I did that. That was really not the right thing. But equally, you know, I reckon you could have, what do you think about how you did this? Or um, Honesty, yeah, honesty is really important too. I want to finish by saying that there's very been very few career decisions I've made since I've... Um, 
been in your life that I haven't run past you. You're an excellent, um, you're an ex- excellent leader. You're an excellent advisor. You're an excellent friend. You're an incredible uh, CEO of a um, charity and not-for-profit. You've done incredible work. So thank you for your time today. <laughs> thank you. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.